Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. I am Rabbi Barry Chesler, and today's Daf is Masachet Ketubot Kapdalad, Tractate Ketubot, Folio 24. At the bottom of yesterday's Daf, we began a sogio which asked, why do we need both the principle, Shehapesha Asar Huapesha Hitir, that the mouth that forbids is the one that permits, and a number of cases based on this principle. The principle itself should suffice. The Talmud claims, as is its want, that all is necessary. Yesterday it was explained that Rabbi Joshua accepts the testimony of the one who says the field did belong to your father, but I bought it from him. By beginning with the statement to his disadvantage, the person is now believed when he continues with the statement of remedy. Had this been the only case, one might think the principle of Shahapesha Asar only applies to monetary cases. But where the witnesses have no monastery stake in their testimony, it would not apply. And if the only case taught had to do with witnesses, the case where the witnesses testified that it is their signatures, but they were done under duress, we might say no. And if only these two cases were taught, we would assume the principle applies only to monetary cases, but not the case of Eshet Ish, marriage cases, which are a case of Visurine prohibitions. Why do I need the case of a woman claiming I was a captive but maintained my purity, that is, did not engage in sex with a man other than her husband? For the case that witnesses come after she married to testify that she was taken captive. She would not be required to be divorced in that case. Finally, the Talmud notes that this is good if we take the line about the witnesses coming after marriage to apply to the case of a woman taken captive. Suppose that applies to the case of the woman who says she was married and then divorced, in which case we would not need the case of the captive woman at all, since it would be inferred for the case of the married woman who says she is now divorced. It is for the sake of the second case, where there are two women captives who testify about each other. There it teaches that we do not suspect Gunlin, where each would testify falsely about the other to their mutual advantage. Finally, the case of the two men who each testify that they and the other are Kohanim, this is mentioned to teach the disagreement between Rabbi Yehuda and the rabbis. The next sogya begins with the Baraita related to the Mishnah. In the Baraita it states that a man who says that he is a Kohen and his colleague is a Kohen is believed for the sake of eating truma, but not for the sake of marriage, until a third comes so that there are two to testify about each Kohen. Rabbi Yehuda, however, says the third is necessary even for the eating of truma. May we explain the disagreement by saying Rabbi Yehuda suspects Gomlin, whereas the sages do not? But the opposite has been taught in Mishnah Demai, where the donkey drivers enter the city and one says, my produce is new, but my colleague's is old, and therefore better. My produce has been untied, but my colleague's has been. In this case, he is not believed. But Rabbi Yehuda says he is. Rav Ada Barava said in the name of Rav that the statements must be reversed. Abaye says that they need not be changed, 
But we explain Rabbi Yehuda by saying that in matters of Demai, produce about which it is uncertain whether it has been tithed, the sages are lenient because most Amehaaretz, the uncultured, tithe Demai. Rabbi said, are the statements of Rabbi Yehuda more difficult to reconcile than those of the sages? Rather, Rabbi Yehuda is as we explained, and the sages too is no difficulty. For as Rabbi Chama Bar Ukva told in a different context, it is when their tools of the craft are in their hands. Here too the tools of the craft are in their hands. Meaning, it is clear that they want to sell their goods, and we might add, will say anything to further that goal. And what was the case of Rabbi Chama Bar Ukva? A potter set down his pots in order to get a drink of water from the river. The inner one, ones are pure, the outer ones are considered impure. Presumably, while the potter is getting a drink, people passing by, seeing pots for sale, touch them. Presumably, at least one of them is in a state of ritual impurity. But do we not learn in the Brita that they are all considered impure? Said Rabbi Hamabar Ukva, in the case where his tools are in his hand, since everyone will touch them. But do we not learn in the Brita that then they are all pure? Said Rabbi Hamabar Ukva, this is when his tools are not in his hand. But if this is so, how do we get the statement here, that the inner ones are pure and the outer ones impure? Is when he is close to the Rashud Rabim and puts his merchandise on the side of the Rashud Rabim. When the Rashud Rabim is crowded, people are being jostled when they are near the merchandise, and some inadvertently come into contact with those on the outside, rendering them impure. Alternatively, one can say this is a disagreement between Rabbi Yehuda and the sages about whether a priest can be raised from truma to the status of a priest. The last Sogi on the Daf will take us not only through tomorrow, but on to the day after as well. In the Steinzalt's edition, it is one of the longest of Sugyot, and the entire Daf and parts of two others. We begin with the status of a priest. Can it be determined through observance of a behavior associated with priests? In other words, if a priest acts like a priest, does that mean we can presume he is in fact a priest? The first question that is asked is can, we is, can we determine status through documents? What might this mean? If a person writes, so-and-so, I, so-and-so, the priest, sign as a witness, this is not testimony, for he is merely making a statement about himself. But if he writes, I, so-and-so, the priest, borrowed the mana, a certain amount of money from so-and-so, and witnesses sign the document, what are they attesting to? the amount of the loan, or everything in the document which would include the designation of the borrower as a bona fide priest. There is a disagreement between Rafun and Rafista on this point. One says the person in question is considered a Kohen on the basis of the star, the document, and the other does not. A second question is asked about whether one can establish one's priestly status by him doing the priestly blessing. This is a question for the one who says one can determine priestly status from Truma, and also for the one who says one cannot determine status from Truma. In the one case, a non-priest who eats Truma is subject to a death penalty, where saying the priestly blessing when not a Kohen is merely a violation of a positive commandment. Or perhaps there is no difference. For the one who says we cannot establish his priestly basis on this basis of Truma, for the one who says we cannot establish his priestly status on the basis of truma, do we say that it is because he eats it in private, whereas the priestly blessing is recited in public? So one is much less likely to sin in front of others, or again, perhaps there is no difference. 
Rav Chisa and Rav Avina disagree. Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak said to Rav, What is the law regarding the elevation to priestly status of one who does a priestly blessing? He said, This is a dispute between Rav Chisa and Rav Avina. What is the law? He said to him, I know a brighter. Rabbi Yossi said, Great is presumption. As it is said, quoting Ezra, chapter 2, verses 61 to 63, in which people of uncertain ancestry could not be registered as priests, nor could they eat the most holy food, until it would be determined they could by a priest utilizing the Urim and Tumim. This is understood to mean that he, meaning Ezra, told them they are presumptive priests. What priestly portion you ate in the Galilee, the holy things of the country, meaning Truma, you may continue to eat in Israel. If you are thinking that one may be elevated to the priestly status on the basis of the priestly blessing, then these, the people returning from Babel, should have been so elevated. But here it is different, because their presumption is diminished. For if you do not say so, the one that says that one can elevate to the priestly status on the basis of eating trumah would have to elevate these, who did eat trumah. But we do not elevate them on account of their diminished presumption. This ends our da'af for today. To recap, we examined the principle of Shahapesha Sarafu Apesha Hittir and explained why each of the cases was necessary to teach and could not be subsumed under the rule. The next Sogya harmonized apparently contradictory statements of both Rabbi Yehuda and the sages, one found in a Mishnah and another in a Brita. Finally, we began to investigate the disagreement between Rabbi Yehuda and the sages regarding the raising of a priest to priestly status on the basis of observed behavior rather than genealogical records. Until tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.